Enoch, excuse me. We'll be talking about the book of Enoch. Let's turn to the book of Jude this evening. Please turn to the book of Jude. No, <laughs> I have not departed from the faith. Uh, turn to the book of Jude, if you will. And as you're turning there, I've got a couple of things I just want to remind our church family, looking ahead towards this week, just a reminder for our faith family to, that we're not gathering this Wednesday as our normal pattern is, so just, just keep that in mind, and we trust and hope that you will have a wonderful uh, time of Thanksgiving with your friends and family, how good it was to see visitors with us today, family visiting from afar, and uh, some of you may be doing that same thing, going to visit family, and we'll be praying for you and praying for safety of travel and just the sweetness in your fellowship uh, in the coming days. So don't forget that. But then also be praying for a couple of people. You'll notice some of this on the back of the bulletin and one not on the back of the bulletin. Be praying for Mike Hughes, one of our elders, uh, who will be having a procedure on his hand on Wednesday uh, due to an ongoing uh, issue with numbness that he's had. And we're praying that the Lord will help that to be successful and just to help him. And I know he will be glad for your prayers and also just the Lord's touch of healing there. Um, uh, Mike Berger also having surgery on his wrist on Tuesday, so make a distinction there between Mike Berger and Mike Hughes, uh, both of those having hand surgery or wrist surgery. And then also Haddon, um, Haddon um, Hickson. Haddon Hickson is not on the prayer list, but just something that happened over the weekend was a concern that he might have uh, meningitis, and uh, thankfully he does not. He's okay, and he's recovering at home. Uh, but just be praying for Haddon Hickson. He's uh, doing well, but there was an initial scare that was there, and uh, we're praying for them and their family, a lot of things that are, that are going on there. Turn with me to the book of Jude for our study this evening. And again, we're looking at this theme of apostasy, past and present. Apostasy, past and present. And I want us to begin uh, in verse 4. And we'll read in verses 4 down through verse 7. And I want to make a connection. I feel led of the Lord to spend the few moments, first few moments of our, our time together tonight to make a connection between the message this morning, but particularly verse 4 as a launching pad and then moving into uh, the historical illustrations that are given to us by, by Jude. So verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And another example, that was the first one. Second example, verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Verse 7, the third example, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, and having gone after strange flesh, these are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. As we look here in the, the Word of God, we find that, as just if you're jumping in in the study with us, that Jude is warning the professing church, the general church, this is a general epistle, of the fact that apostates, that previous apostles have warned of, He's saying that warning that was future in the sense of where Paul and Peter give the warning and yet it is yet to happen, that time has now come. 
And the more I study this passage, some of you asked me this question on the very first sermon, and I did not have as clear an answer. But to answer the question, which book came first? Did Peter write his epistles first, or Jude write his epistles, uh, his, work, his general epistle first? I now think the more and more I spend time in, in putting it all together, that, that Peter wrote his first, and then Jude obviously is following after. I did not have the volume of time of studying it and on the front end, but more and more as you see that, I think that's very clear in the text. And so we've been looking at this theme of apostasy, what it is, as we think about the word. It's not a word we use a lot, per se, but yet it, the fruit of it and the action of it is something we see all around us every day in professing Christianity Publicly, we see it as we've made uh, mention to it in, in famous people who've written books, uh, famous people who have recorded songs that have been influencers in the Christian uh, community and in church life, and yet they'll make an announcement and say, well, I'm no longer a Christian. I've, I've, I've left that. I'm no longer a, a professing Christian. I've now converted to, and it might be a, a cult, it might be a, another religion, or it might just be a complete uh, abandonment of the faith. Well, the word that, that Jude uses here is used in Acts 21, 21, as we think about this word apostasy. And the usage there in that reference is to forsake. The same word is used for forsake. So as we think about what apostasy is, it is a coming to the truth. It is a tasting of the truth. It's being exposed to the truth, but then it's turning your back on the truth. So we can say for sure it, it is not in the sense of being ignorant of. Those are two different things, and there's some things to dissect here is those who've never heard the truth and those who have heard the truth. There are those who are certainly lost in their trespasses and sins. There are those who have general revelation, but we're not talking about any of those in, in this instance. We're talking about those who've been under sound teaching. We're talking about those who have a Bible. We're talking about those who know not only who Christ is, but know of his purpose and work. They know of his redeeming message and what his claims are. In fact, they themselves might have been a preacher or teacher at some point in time. And so they've been exposed to that truth, and it looks as if they've, quote, lost their salvation even, as some people like to describe, or it is just, quite frankly, inexplicable. And for many of us, it is a great burden on our souls as we think about friends and loved ones uh, who ha have made this choice, and we pray for them, and we ask that the Lord would, in his grace, work in them. So this usage is the idea is that they have come through the side door. Now the warning here that Peter that Jude is giving is speaking of these apostates are leaders that are in the church presently. They're already here, and yet they have not come through the, the front door of faith, but they have literally, in Greek usage, come through, instead of that door, they've snuck in the side door, and they're just here. Uh, they're just present among us. Uh, they're just, they're, 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 they walk the aisle, uh, they, they say, I'm saved, and yet there's no examination of that. There's no interview. There's no questions. It's like, oh, great. I want to join the church. Sure, join the church. I need to be baptized. Okay, be baptized. And so there's, there's not a lot of discernment uh, that is taking place in it. That's oftentimes how we see it. How does this manifest itself maybe in the modern church today? Well, that could be an example of how the church is filled or begins to be filled with people who have crept in unawares. They look right, they sound right, they say the right things, and yet, as we'll see in just a moment, a little bit more of a detail there in verse 4. John chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Jesus describes the usage of what Jude is saying about what an apostate is. John describes it as he records Jesus' words. And listen, he says, Most assuredly, 
I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Then verse 7 of that passage, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters, now here's our key thought. I just want to make a connection from this morning's message. Whoever enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. But the thief, in contrast to that, the thief does not come except to plunder, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. So the key here is that Jesus is the door by which the sheep enter the door of the church. He is the way of salvation. This is speaking of the new birth, coming to him by faith and faith alone. But false thieves and false professors and thieves and ultimately apostates enter in by the side door. And as one commentator said this, I think he says it in a pithy way. He says, they need to be exposed because they have come in the side door, but they need to be kicked out the back door. Now, that sounds unloving until you fully understand what an apostate is. And you think about this is not a new problem. We mentioned the life and ministry of Jesus in our study. Jesus had Judas, of course, and yet we see that this has always been the case. And one question that could arise is why? Why does God allow apostates to be present among the professing church? Well, as we often say, why does God do things? Or why does God allow things? We don't always know that. We don't always know the full answer uh, to the question of why. But I think we could gather to answer that question this evening, that God permits apostasy. God permits apostates. God permits the wheat to be among the tares to do a number of things that are always happening at the same time. The first is it's hardening, a judicial hardening of those who reject the truth. God is allowing to himself to be glorified by those who would reject the truth. There is a judicial hardening at play. But then there's also a softening of the true genuine sheep who responded faith to the word of God. And there's also a testing of the body of Christ, of the saints of Christ, where Satan would desire to tempt. God allows or often providentially, intentionally uses as a test in our faith, the building up of our faith for the perfecting of the saints. One thing we know for sure, Romans 9 describes a judicial hardening process that happens. And both the salvation of sinners and judicial hardening, now this is a hard pill for many to swallow, but God is not ashamed of this. Equally give God glory. As we think about how do we answer the question of why God allows his church to have struggles and trials at times, God is equally glorified in his administration of justice but also in his display of mercy. And what we cry out for is, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The only thing you and I have as we come to God is simply a cry and appeal to his mercy. We have nothing to offer uh, to him. Now, Jesus makes reference to this in Matthew 7, 15, just very quickly, when he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are as ravenous wolves, you will know them by their fruits. And he goes on to expound upon that. That's a familiar passage for us. Well, that is exactly what Jude is saying to us as well. The brother, half-brother of Christ. 
beware. In, in a sense, Jude is seeing these wolves within the church and seeing, wow, their teeth are a lot longer than, than sheep's teeth. And he, it's like he's grabbing the, 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 the cloak or the costume and he's pulling it back. And so he's saying, this is how you can know who these individuals are. And we see that in verse 4, and I want to go through it quickly because a number of weeks ago, we kind of went through verse 4 at the end of our study rather quickly. And in preparation and in prayer this afternoon, I'm making a connection from what I preached this morning to the lesson this evening, I think it will be helpful just to look at it quickly one more time. Notice what verse 4 tells us. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, we, we mentioned that word means like through a side door, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Very quickly, in verse 4, that word ungodly, just, just in quick summary, is a, is a destitute lacking of reverence for God. This is what these men are embodying. It describes, when we say the ungodly or someone who is ungodly, it describes someone who does not show respect and reverence for God that he deserves. And in times, friends, we act in a way that we can act in a way as his children and as Christians as the ungodly do. It, it can be something as basic as prayerlessness. The, the ungodly do not pray. Well, at times when we're in a season of sin as his children, or if we're walking in an absence of faith or operating in the sphere of, of the flesh, it's at those times, as his genuine children, we are mirroring the old man. We are operating in a way that is not consistent with the new life that is within us. You could say the godly have a love for God, a reverence for God, and walk in faith and obedience to God, and the ungodly are the exact opposite. And the reason I want to just touch a note here as we make a connection to Matthew 10 is that when we think ungodly, as Jude will get to in a moment, we think of it in its worst forms, and there's a reason for that. But we would be wrong to simply think of the ungodly are those that walk around with, with a sign that says, I am ungodly, and, and, and announce that. And Jude goes into great detail to explain to us, well, how do we know as we look around the world today, as we see ungodliness in our life, self-examination, and ungodliness in the professing church today? How can we know what that is? Now, I want you to turn very quickly to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. And again, we're going to move quickly through verse 4 so that we can get to these historical examples. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. Paul writing to Timothy says, Many have a form of godliness. In other words, they have the act down, but they deny the power of it. From such people who say one thing, have a form, a cloak of, an act of godliness, but yet they deny the power, from such people turn away. For of these sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away of various lusts, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, if the Holy Spirit will enable you to see, that describes much of modern-day professing Christianity, friends. People who know the truth, but they can't ever seem to arrive at the truth. They know the truth of Scripture, but yet they cannot operate in faith. They have a parallel of a form of it, an awareness of it, but yet a form, as Paul describes, but yet they deny the power of God. 
In fact, we can emphasize it today, as we, or we can point out today, it's an overemphasis on, on the sins of the flesh, or an overemphasis on brokenness, or an overemphasis on struggles, but yet never able to move beyond it. Does that make sense? The common vernacular is one of, I have struggles, or, uh, or whatever, and listen, <laughs> do we not all have struggles? No doubt about it. But I want you to know that there is power in the grace of God. There is power in Christ. There is power to, to fulfill the commands that God calls us to, to walk in the spirit of grace. So very quickly, verse 4, we just highlight that word ungodly. The second word we want to highlight quickly is lawlessness. Going back to Jude, verse 4, not only are these who have crept into the church ungodly, but they are also lawless. They, these are those who turn the grace of God into liberty to sin. Just a reminder, a grace, of course, is, is that which God gives to us, his free grace, which we do not deserve. To lay claim in some type of expectant way upon the grace of God is to completely nullify the definition of grace. Grace is our receiving of God what we do not deserve. Notice those who turn the grace of our God into lewdness or lawlessness, and maybe your translation says licentiousness, that type of language. It is turning the grace of God into liberty to sin. So we understand what grace is. Grace is forgiveness from sin. Grace is forgiveness and the, uh, the power of sin removed, the condemnation of the law removed. And yet apostates understand this and they turn the grace of God into something that is immoral as an excuse to sin. And they become the person who they say the Spirit of God has led them into and approved the very sin that they're committing. And I'll get to that more in a moment, as, as weird as that sounds. They are a person who say, I have received the Spirit of God, but yet they are the only judge of their personal actions. They, they use language like this. No one can judge me. You can't judge me. This is between me and God. God is my judge, that type of thing. What's weird is this. Their slogan is, all things are lawful for me. In other words, I've experienced the grace of God in Christ, and yet I can live in such a way that all things are of liberty. They turn the grace of God into a means of liberty. And what Jude is exposing here is that it usually manifests itself in gross deeds of the flesh. In fact, if you study it, there's a cloak of spiritual language on it, but it's constantly fulfilling the list that Paul gives, which are the deeds of the flesh. Paul is famous for his list there in his epistles. And you could take any one of them, and the person who is an apostate, who is in the church, is the person who is fulfilling these deeds of the flesh and yet saying, I am a child of God. They're, they have a form of godliness, but the power denies it. I just want to quite say a quick aside, because in my own journey of, of life and experience, one question will arise is, when does a church cease to be a church? Now, I know that that's an unusual question, but friends, I want you to know that there are churches who tolerate not just broken people and sinful people and, and restoring people and, and seeking to reach people for Jesus Christ, but they tolerate, and I just want to be careful I don't go off into tons of, of uh, go into a rabbit trail, but gross immorality with no church discipline and no attempt at church discipline. People divorcing one another within the church and intermarrying other people within the church and the elders or the professing pastors do not deal with it in any way whatsoever. 
And as hard as that may be for us to imagine, that is the mainstay. That is the norm in the professing evangelical culture all around. And to address it and to confront it and to point out what Scripture says and to lovingly call people to repentance and to call people to restoration in Christ is just honestly not seen. And so the question can ultimately begin to arise that if God's word is not faithfully preached and anyone is allowed in the door and there is no church discipline, what do you have? And the answer to that is, is a club. <laughs> You've got all kinds of things. You've got, I don't know. But if God's word is not faithfully followed in practice, it's not to say there may not be genuine Christians present there, but at some point, the rubber's going to hit the road, and they're going to have to move on as they realize, I'm either not getting fed, or this sin, open, open tolerance of sin is, is not okay. And that is what we find when Jude exposes these individuals and gives us these hallmarks of the apostates. In verse 18, uh, we, we see that Jude points out this further kind of illumination on who they are. He says, notice how I told you that there would be mockers in the last time, notice here, who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Now that's a key distinction to make as you bring verse 4 and verse 18 together. These are persons whose Lord is not the Lord Jesus Christ, but whose Lord is their flesh, is their own carnal appetites. And it makes it so difficult to confront at times because they use the language of the Spirit and they use spiritual mumbo-jumbo. And then if you look at verse 8, they, he uses the word dreamers. They bring in a flawed theology of the Lord told me to do this. And what you have is a perfect storm of gross sin. As crazy as it sounds to quote Ravi Zacharias, and again, I want to be careful here. I know we have a mixed uh, audience and part of my struggle here this evening is knowing what to say and what not to say because of that. But I want to be—I just want to—I'll just say something directly that he said when he was exposed as being uh, a serial, uh, immoral man, which which stunned many people who, who've looked to that man's ministry and, and pattern as and as an example for apologetics and defending the faith. It, it came out on record as one of the things that he would say to those that he coerced was simply. You're doing the Lord's work by ministering to me, by helping me in this way. Using spiritual language, using the language of someone who is a predator for, for, for no other words to use. So as you hear this, maybe it will help you to think through your past and your history as you think about people that you've known and the types of way they, they put a, a fleece over people's uh, eyes and how they can fool people. But ultimately, God's word is the plumb line. And God's word will help us to see sin and error from the way that, that is righteousness. Verse 4, again, this mention of lewdness is the idea of sin without shame. And the idea is, is these apostates will reach a point to where there is no shame of their sin. In fact, they're brazen in it. When exposed, there is no repentance of it. I can think of, of leader after leader or individuals that I'm aware of who, when, when realized or found out, the excuses that they will make are some of the most embarrassing ones that you could ever imagine of how this is okay with God or whatever their sin is, how they'll make an excuse for it or say that the Lord led them uh, to do this. One last thing I want to point out from verse 4 is simply this. They deny Christ. Now, this is where I want to kind of bring this together in light of our message this morning is this aspect of denying Christ. Now, they don't deny him outright by saying Jesus is not the way the truth and the life, but they deny him in practice. 
They deny him an emphasis. They deny his lordship. They deny his claims. It's a, it's a watered-down, listen here, gospel, and it's a watered-down Christianity. And as you hear teaching and preaching, one of the questions you can ask is, is this person, is this teacher or is this preacher being faithful to the scripture or are they explaining away the scripture? Are they saying, well, that's not what Jesus really meant or that's not what Jesus really said? When you go through like the hard sayings of Jesus, do they let them stand and let Jesus speak for himself? Or do they say, well, actually, it's not like that, you know, and they'll explain it away. And it's hard to know what they say because I don't talk like that ultimately. But I, I know that, that it happens. But the point of emphasis that I want to make is this. When you deny the lordship of Christ, you are denying Christ. You cannot come to Christ and ignore the claims of Christ upon you. In fact, again, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is Matthew 1.21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Not just in the future, but in the present, the power of sin is broken. There, there's an aspect to that as past, present, and future. He will save his people from their sins. He will justify them in salvation. He will save his people from their sins. He will continue to sanctify them and break the power of sin and change them into the image of Christ. And friend, you may not be all that you should be, but by God's grace, you are growing in Christ. Amen? And that's that sanctification process. It says, yes, I sin, but I say with Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. The difference is, if you're truly in Christ, you don't enjoy your sin. There's no such thing as being a creature in Christ of enjoying the pleasures of sin. In fact, the most miserable person is the person who's reverted back to the old ways of the flesh and is trying to live in the ways of the Spirit, with the Spirit of God inside him. He's the most miserable person that exists. So we see it in a denial, not of the person and work of Christ per se, but a denial of his lordship or a denial of his, of his claims. And on that point, many churches are filled with apostate leaders, apostate teachers who dilute the claims of Christ, dilute the word of Christ and try to explain it away, that type of thing. And I want you to look at one other cross reference and it's Titus 1.16. Titus chapter 1, verse 16, when we ask, well, how do they do that? Paul's writings are very helpful in giving us examples of exactly how they do that. In Titus 1, 16, we see again something similar that Paul wrote to Timothy, that reference we looked at a moment ago. Titus 1, 16, he describes, he says, they profess to know God. Again, this is the distinction Jesus makes. They say one thing, but the fruit of their life is something different. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable. Now notice they're being disobedient and disqualified for every good work. I just want to maybe highlight that one word here, disobedient. There's a correlation to our, in our society today that has an opposition, a stiff arm to any type of display of authority. But when it comes to bowing the knee to Christ, it is that which saves Parents, we're not, we're not serving our family well and serving our children well if we don't begin at the earliest of ages of trying to teach them a measure of obedience to Christ, but yet also obedience to those that God has legitimately placed in their life, just by way of application here. What Titus wants us to know is moving on to the scope of salvation, they are disobedient to God's word. They're disobedient to the claims of Christ. Another way of saying it is their actions speak louder than their words. 
You turn on the television, as I did this past week, and I saw Jimmy Swaggart, who is the cousin, cousin, uh, some, I think he's the first cousin of Jerry Lee Lewis. And Jerry Lee Lewis, obviously, uh, to say that name, younger kids won't know who Jerry Lee Lewis is, but very famous musician of yesteryear. Um, and my main point is simply this. So I stopped to listen just for a second, and uh, they were talking about the passing of our, uh, the, of our cousin, Jerry Lee Lewis, is the way they were describing it. And uh, in five seconds' time, this is what I heard, literally, in a matter of passing. They talked about how they ran into his, now, it's interesting, they're cousins, but evidently they're not very close, because the way the language was described, this is what it sounded like. They, we ran into his publicist in Nashville a few weekends ago, and he let us know that Jerry Lee was very low. It was very close to his deathbed, and this is what he said. He said, this is what he told us, and I wrote it down. He said, I know where I've been, and I know who I am, and I know where I'm going. And to that, as they relayed that message, the crowd erupted. And But friends, what, what, what is that? that? That's not saying anything. Now, let's, don't hear me wrong. I hope the man is saved. I hope he came to Christ. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But many people use that type of vague language. What does that mean? I, you know, I, Satan himself could say that statement, and it means nothing. I know where I've been, I know who I am, and I know where I'm going. And yet, when you heard the applause, I was just kind of meditating on like, okay, is it, is it going to come next? And I'm glad to report to you that Jerry confessed faith in Christ. And by the way, I don't know. I have no idea. But no, that never came. And it was just, amen, amen and amen. And I thought, in light of the message, what a great illustration of just how people talk today, how people think today. A vague, vanilla, feel-good reference that really means nothing. It is a denying of the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last time together, we looked at not only the warning of apostates and apostasy, but we saw it is very legitimate and real. And we looked at Paul's writing specifically and, and what the Word of God has to say towards that. As we come back to the book of Jude, verses 5 through 7, we see that Jude reminds his audience without a lot of background detail, assuming that they know. So as we walk through these, there's a lot of assumptions that they are fully aware uh, of all of the background details. I want to give an example. For example, many people struggle with the doctrine of election, just to pull out a doctrine, right? But notice how the New Testament writers do not struggle with it. In, in, first John, or excuse me, in second John and third John, they'll say, to the elect lady. What's interesting about that is, is we don't talk like that today. If I were to walk up to one of you guys and say, my dear friend, the elect John, or the elect whoever, you would be, if you talk like that today, you would be accused of being super weird, a super spiritual. No, you have a hobby horse. That's, that's how people would approach it. But it's interesting, when you compare the clear teaching of the New Testament, there is not only doctrines, but are, there are many things that are already understood. They are, there's no problem of faith here. Uh, to, to, to make a point. And it's that way with Jude here when he brings in, invokes here the apostate Israelites, the apostate angels, and the apostate Gentiles, he doesn't go into a ton of background. So if we're going to know what Jude's intention here is, we need to know the whole of Scripture. Now, in his invoking of the apostate Israelites, what's interesting here is that with each of these three groupings, there's, there's three or four major sins that are present. But with each one of them, there's one that is more dominant than the other, yet all are present in the three illustrations. So Jude loves threes. That's a triad. It's something we see in his writings. 
But for the apostate Israelites, it's the sin of unbelief. That is the chief sin. Now, in one sense, all sin begins with the sin of unbelief. Before the judgment that the Israelites received, it was the sin of unbelief. For the apostate angels, it was not only the sin of unbelief, but the main sin predominant in their apostasy was one of rebellion and discontentment, although unbelief was, was present in their sin. And for the apostate Gentiles, the, the key theme is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality was also present with the apostate Israelites and also with the fallen angels. But yet the main theme of their sin and their apostasy, the way it was expressed, was, was that of sexual immorality. When you compare Jude's verses 5 through 7 to 2 Peter chapter 4, where Peter also gives examples, he gives two of these three examples and yet one different. So Peter gives this, and you don't have to turn there, but he mentions the angels that fell. He invokes the flood of Noah, and, and so he does not reference the fallen angels, but he brings in the flood of Noah, and then he also references the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's look at the first one that, that is the historical illustration, the apostate Israelites, the apostate Israelites. Jude begins with Israel because they are God's chosen people. And because their unbelief throughout the Old Testament is the theme, essentially, of the Old Testament. You can say the presumptuous, predominant sin of God's chosen people was at its heart one of unbelief. Again and again, their hearts were swayed and they, were, they, they knew the one true God and yet they would turn to false gods and false idols. Now in verse 5, Jude says this, I want to remind you, though you once knew this. So Jude is reminding them that they know the gospel, the truth and its power, its fullness, and yet he's giving them an example of the terms of something that they can easily look back to and recognize. And in doing that, he points them back to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, it's a powerful picture of God's divine love, and it is also equally a powerful picture, don't miss this, of, of God's divine judgment. Again, going back to this theme of why God allows these things to happen, there's, there's always two or three things happening, or, or infinitely more than that, of course. But main things are simply one of God's judgment on full display for His glory and God's mercy on full display for His glory. And so when we look at the account in Exodus, and you can write down the references in Exodus chapter 12 and Deuteronomy chapter 4, which go into great detail of describing how God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage. Their response as he began to lead them into the wilderness, of course, as he used his representative Moses to lead them, was consistently three things. Unbelief, doubting, and defecting from the faith that God would actually deliver on the promises of doing what he said he would do. A doubt, and yet that God could actually fulfill what he promised he would fulfill in bringing them out of the slavery of Egypt and taking them to the promised land. There was a continual unbelief, continual doubting, and a continual defecting from the faith that even reached the point, we know in Scripture, the famous account, where they began as in Moses' absence of the receiving of the law. What did they do? They did not grow strong in their faith. They did not continue in their faith. They responded in coercing Aaron into making for them an idol, a golden calf with which they would worship as in the place of God. We see these in Numbers chapter 13 and also uh, other texts as well. 
Their sin would take them also to the point of murmuring against God instead of worshiping Him and adoring Him. Now here's what's interesting, and just in the same way we saw in how we think about cowardice and how we think of that, how that compares maybe with other sins in the Scriptures, we often, if we're going to talk, start talking about gross sins, we'll start naming other things. But again, it just reminds us that our ways are not God's ways, and His ways are, are not our ways. As we saw in this morning, Revelation 21, that cowardice leads the list. Cowardice and fear lead the list right there with those who will be sent to the lake of fire as a fruit of not being regenerate. Well, what we see here is that God treats murmuring and unbelief as serious sin. So just by way of application, Grace, so that we're not simply looking into the Scriptures or looking backwards back there in the book of Exodus, what about me and you tonight? This would not be fruitful if there's not self-examination taking place where we're saying, Oh, God, would you help me? Would you search my heart, O oh God, and see if there be any wicked way in me? And Lord, when I recognize the struggle, thank you for prompting me. Thank you for showing me. And thank you for grace to repent when I see it present in my life. Friends, run to Christ as we sang tonight. Look to Christ. When you sin, confess your sin. He will enable you. He will strengthen you. He will forgive you. Come to Jesus and rest in Him. But just don't continue in a pattern of stubbornness and in a pattern of unbelief, in a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. What we see here in this example of apostate Israel and their murmuring is that God treats it very seriously. And what we find in Numbers chapter 14, verse 22 through 30 is that this apostate generation culminated to such a point to where God said, you will not enter the promised land. Now, again, I want to make a, I would not be doing justice, and I'm not preaching from numbers tonight, but just by way of application, how often it is we, we look at authority and we look at rules and we look at guidance and shepherding and we say, well, that sounds ugly. That's not fair. How, how, it, that's the way our society responds to any type of shepherding or authority or rules that are honestly an expression of love, aren't they? And yet many would look at God and say, how unkind. That's not fair or whatever it is that they say, to which God would say, who are you, O oh man, to respond to me and ask of me, Romans 9, of any type of question. Who are you to stand? As he would say to Job in Job 38, where were you? Who are you? Where were you when I founded and put in place the, the pillars of the universe and the foundation uh, of the earth? Now, the summary event of, of the Jews' rebellion and their unbelief was culminated in the rebellion at Kadesh. This is the familiar passage in Numbers chapter 14, and if you want to turn there quickly, I would invite you to do that. But th this is the point where God had enough. He gave grace. He gave forgiveness. Time and time again, God displays mercy upon his people in their sin of unbelief. He gives temporary judgments, temporary punishments. But ultimately, God judges the unbelief, the apostasy. And you say, what is, wait a second, how are they apostates? I don't know who all was apostates. This was certainly a generational judgment that was handed down on a whole group of people. And so only in the mind of the Lord do we know who is what and what. And he, will do, he will break those things out. But within the body of the people, including, lest we forget this, including Moses, who sinned, not in the same way, but he sinned. And because of his sin, he was not an apostate, so don't, don't hear that. But what I'm saying is, is because of the people's sin and Moses' frustration at times with the people, but yet it's sin, no excuse for sin, God did not allow him to go into the promised land. 
In a, in a sense, he was judged by God. He was lovingly chastened by God, which led to his death. And if you look at the tenor of that passage, Moses is in full strength. Moses is in full health. He's fully able to lead the people into the promised land. And yet, it was a, it was a serious sin in the eyes of God. Now, in Numbers 14, verse 1, what we see here is that context where the, the spies were sent into the land. Very quickly, they, they are sent, the, the 12 spies are sent into the land, and two came back who were full of faith. Of course, it's Joshua and Caleb. But 10 came back with zero faith, and they said, no, we should not go uh, into this land. Numbers 14, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought to us this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and, and turn to Egypt." I just want to hit pause there very quickly. You and I hear that, and we stand in judgment on these people, don't we? We say, how unbelievable. They could doubt the power and provision of God. They saw the ten plagues of Egypt. They saw God's mighty hand delivering them out of what was seemingly impossible. And he saved them and took them into the wilderness. He divinely fed them. He divinely provided for them. And yet they had a heart of unbelief to which we would remind ourselves, how is it that you and I can say we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, how the second Adam has come and he's lived the perfect life in our place and he's died our death, which is ours to die. He was buried in the grave for three days and he rose on the third day and he's now ascended into heaven, displaying full power and authority over death, hell, and the grave. And yet we struggle with faith. And yet we struggle in the ways that we sin. In the same way, who are we to stand above these individuals? As, as obvious as it is. Now there's more to the story. God responds in judgment severely, justly, and swiftly. And his verdict is one of this. You will never enter the promised land. Their unbelief, their apostasy led to death. And judgment. Numbers 14, 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so will I do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number, from twenty years and above, Except for Caleb and the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun, who were the two spies who came back saying, let's go into this land. If the point is not the giants or the land, the point is our God. Let's keep our eyes fixed on him. We have a great God. So except for Caleb and Joshua, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you to dwell in. But your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in. In other words, you're not going to get to see the promise that I have promised you, but your little ones will. Now, just as an aside, a conversation came up recently. People oftentimes want to know about the age of accountability. People want to know what is that age and where does Scripture teach on that. It really doesn't. It's just a proper thing of the age of accountability. But it's interesting here to notice how God just makes a line of demarcation, isn't it? And I just want to point to you the obvious fact of what Scripture says. And not necessarily saying this is the age of accountability, because I don't believe that. I believe you can be 20 and be fully abreast of the truth of God and reject it. And so I'm not espousing that. But I do think it's interesting 
that the scripture makes clear that their little ones, those who are 20 and below, are those who will see the promises of God. Just think that's an interesting aside. And he makes clear, he says, but your little ones who you said would be victims because of your unbelief, I will bring in and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, which was 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In the wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing the bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by a plague before the Lord. You say, whoa, 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 okay, what's the problem here? Here's the problem, unbelief. And the point I'm trying to make is, is how trivially we treat unbelief in the life of the church today. It's like no big deal. But this is how God deals with unbelief. This is how, what God thinks about unbelief. And in a sense, all of sin begins with unbelief. Finally, verse 38, But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Here is historical example number one, apostate Israel. The, the story is so much more fuller than that. This is the summary. This is the Reader's Digest version of it. But yet the heart, the key sin in all of it is simply this. Israel did not believe the promises of God. And friends, what a word of application there is for us. I'm not calling us apostates by any means, but to make application is we search our hearts is to say, Lord, do I have a heart that believes not only your commands, but the promises of what you call me to do? If I feel the sense, the leading of the promises of God or God's making something clear in my life, do I submit to his lordship and rest in his grace and not fear even if it's my mother-in-law or my father-in-law or my mom or my dad, as we saw this morning, just by making a connection or a tie that's there? What is it that's keeping you from fully following Jesus Christ if not in salvation for some of you, if you're listening to me or if they listen to this message at some other point, what is preventing you from following the Lord Jesus Christ and his call upon your life and his claims upon you, not only in salvation, but what about in sanctification? What doors have you just turned away from because it's too hard for you and yet God is still giving you a chance to repent? God is giving you a moment to turn back. He's giving you grace upon grace. But if you continue in your hardness of heart, it could be ultimately the fruit, listen here, ultimately the fruit of apostasy. You're saying one thing, but you're doing another. When we were moving up here, my, my, somebody in my home church handed me a tape of my granddad. My granddad was a, was, a, was a preacher of God's word, but he was an interesting preacher. Uh, he did not preach expositorily. I love my granddad. He was, he, he was my best friend. He died when I was in fifth grade, but he was a unique guy. He was his own guy. Truly just a raw vessel that the Lord was pleased to anoint and to bless and use him to do all kinds of things. But it was a cassette tape. Do you, do you guys know what a cassette tape was? Yes? Yeah. So, so as we're moving up here, I'm in my pickup truck with a trailer behind me, and it's full of stuff. And so I just, I, somebody handed me this cassette tape. So it's one of his messages. And so I, don't, I, you know, I, I knew my, what I had heard of my granddad preach, but this was a message he preached like you know, a revival somewhere. So, 
So, so we put in that message, and I'm listening to it, and he told one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. And he tells a story of his preaching in a revival, and I can't remember the context, but ultimately it's the call of God upon your life. That was the, kind of the theme of the message. And he was talking about the, one of the greatest travesties he's ever witnessed was the fact of a child, I and mean, I can't remember if it was a boy or a girl or what the call was, but the point was someone responded to the message and saying, I feel like God is calling me to preach. I think that was it. It wasn't like the mission field, but God was calling them in a distinct way uh, to preach. And uh, the mother wouldn't let it happen, as weird as that sounds. And at the end of the service said, you will not be doing that. And it stood in the way of between him and Jesus. And he went on to explain and, and telling the story. It was a, for him, it was a story in the past that to his knowledge, that young man felt that God was calling him as a result of the message to surrender to the call of ministry and to preach. And yet to his knowledge, he was not in the ministry because he was talked out of the ministry as a stumbling block by, by his mom or his dad, one of them, you know. It's one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. And so as we just make application, it could be that maybe that's your story. Or it could be that God's at work in your life. Parents, stay out of the way. Or maybe that's you. And you've, you, you, you've just hardened your heart in a sense. And yet the Lord has not judged you. The Lord is still working in you. There's, there's repentance and grace available for you. I don't know. You can understand how difficult some of this is to preach in a timeline type of sense. Because for some, as you make application, it could be that we don't know if you're an apostate yet. But you may ultimately fulfill to be an apostate simply because of this. You don't respond to the call of God upon your life. And God could have made some things very clear to you. I'm not sure. But I'll, I'll trust His Spirit to make that application. What we find here is the root sin is a sin of unbelief. Well, we're out of time this evening. But uh, I, I want to introduce the second one very quickly. And uh, to, to, just to try to make it appeasing, you'll have to come back next time, right? And here the rest of what was it, Paul Harvey, who said, here's the rest of the story, okay? The second example we see here is in verse 6, that of the apostate angels. Now, the apostate angels, verse 6 is this, and the angels, this is the second example that Jude knows his audience is fully aware of. So he doesn't give a lot of description, he just simply invokes them. It says, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. What a verse. Jude has no problem bringing in all kinds of not only interesting things or difficult things, but like some of the most difficult things in all of Scripture. And here he invokes these fallen angels who have not stayed in the place that God had ordained for them. They disobeyed God, and because of that disobedience, they are suffering a punishment that is reserved uniquely for them. There is no salvation for them, you could say. Now, it's interesting, again, going back, say, to the doctrine of election, people have no problem with the Scripture's use of the elect angels and those who are chained up in everlasting chains under darkness for the great day. You ever notice that? <laughs> in, in the concerns of, of, of things, the angels are of no concern to anyone, but there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of interest. Now, Isaiah, if you're taking notes, background references that allude to the fact of angels and their first estate and their falling from that. There's four key passages that, that teach us about that. And before I give them to you, I just want to remind us all, listen, a hermeneutical principle is this. Where the Scripture speaks, we speak. And where the Scriptures are silent, we are silent, at least in audacity and conviction and boldness. Does that make sense? I cannot say with veracity and authority 
what is outside of the bounds of Scripture. So we're going to take Scripture for what, for what it's worth. We find the first example in the first reference is in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. A second background passage is Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. The third one is Genesis chapter 3, of course, maybe the most famous in all the Bible. And then Genesis chapter 6. Now, in our passage, Jude does not identify these angels. He simply brings them into the subject. He brings them into the conversation. And he assumes that his audience knows them. In fact, when you look in 2 Peter and his reference, his teaching of them, 2 Peter 4 and other passages, he also makes reference that, that there is an understanding that in Jewish culture, traditional writings outside of Scripture, that there is much written not only about angels but also about these particular fallen angels. So something that there was a consensus among the professing church in that day about what this was that Jude does not elaborate on. Now, just to introduce the subject tonight, there are two key views that, that commentators and people hold in reference to this verse here, to verse 6. The first one is they say this, this group of angels refers to the original group of angels who rebelled uh, in maybe Genesis chapter 3 or before Genesis chapter 3, the original fall of Lucifer and his angels that rebelled against God with Lucifer. So there are some that are saying that this is what Jude is referring to, the original fall. Then a second view that is held is that this refers to Genesis chapter 6 and the reference of an invasion of the human race by fallen angels where they engaged in sexual relations with mankind, perverted the lineage of mankind, and produced all types of wickedness among mankind. So then a I'm not going to say an interesting topic, but a, a sordid topic for sure. And the belief is held that they produced an offspring, the sons of God, making reference to the fallen angels, the sons of God cohabiting and intermixing with uh, humankind and producing a half-human, a half-demon progeny or creatures upon the face of the earth. And while I hold to some of that, I don't hold to all of that. But that's maybe the two most famous views of what they're saying Jude holds to here. So for the background, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6. And we'll just introduce this, we'll close, and uh, we'll just try to pick up right there where we say this is where we are, this is where we've left off the, the background, and this is what I believe Jude is referring to. I believe it's what Peter is referring to when he makes reference to these angels who did not hold to their first a state. Genesis chapter 6 and the sons of God. Now just by way of comparison, again if you're taking notes, look at Job chapter 1 and his usage. It will inform, just to get to the heart of our interpretation, what I believe is, is meant by in Genesis chapter 6 about the sons of God. There's again different views of that. Some people say the sons of God are the, the lineage of the line of Seth. And the reference here in the text of the women is a reference to the line of Cain, and that there was a, a mixing of those two lines. I do not hold to that. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. Notice here the usage, the phrase, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Now some people will say that's where the sons of God is in reference to the line of Seth, and the daughters of men is in reference to the line of Cain. That is an argument that is made. That they took, that they saw they, that they were beautiful, verse 2. And that they took wines for themselves of all who, of whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, 
yet his days shall be 120 years. Now there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Well, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds and air, birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, in contrast, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the, the reference, the second example of apostasy were these angels, whoever these angels are, if it is Genesis chapter 6, what happened? There was a deliberate invasion, an angelic invasion, if you will, and a corrupting of the earth that Genesis chapter 6 makes reference to. Obviously, the sin and the corruption was so bad, as we put the pieces of the scripture together, that God chose not to redeem, but to completely destroy. A number of things begin to happen there. There's a picture of salvation. There's a picture of the ark, the door of salvation. There's the remnant. There's the elect, if you will. There's a lot present in Genesis chapter 6. For our purposes, we will not be studying all of that. We will be studying God's judgment upon these apostate angels uh, if this is indeed what we believe it to be, what Jude is referring to, and what Peter is also referring to. Well, thank you for listening. There's a lot to cover tonight, and I pray that the Lord, by His grace, will help us as we think about not just the interesting things of the Scriptures, but friends, let's not be nov- you know, simply those who are entertained by the things of God, but those who love God supremely, and those that bow to our Lord Jesus Christ, our only supreme God. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the supreme potentate, as Paul describes you in 1 Timothy. And we bow to you. You are the door of salvation. You are the one true and living God. And we adore you. We worship you. And Father, we pray that you would work in us, your people, by your spirit, a submission to the authority of your word and a submission to the authority of Christ. And Father, that we will grow in holiness and grow in conformity to the the word of God and having the mind of Christ worked in and through us. That, Father, as a church family, we will continue to grow and experience and taste the fellowship of, of, of just unity in Christ as we obey you in faith. And, Father, as we pray for those that each one of us are acquainted with in our own homes, our own families, and, uh, Lord, those that we're acquainted with that we struggle with, that we worry about. We not only pray for ourselves, but we pray for those on our prayer list. And we say, God, I don't, I don't know where they're at. I don't know what, what they are, but I just know this. They need Jesus. They need Christ. So, Father, would you help us to be faithful in praying not only for ourselves, but also in praying for the lost and praying for those that you give us a sphere of influence with. And as we saw this morning, would we not be hesitant to speak for you when you give us opportunity? Would you give us the Spirit's awareness and illumination to recognize that everyday conversations and interruptions and different interactions are all gospel moments and gospel opportunities? Father, we pray that you would bless each home and each marriage that's here. Father, that you turn the hearts of husbands to their wives, and the hearts of wives towards their husbands, the hearts of children towards their parents, and all of our hearts towards the Lord. This is a work that we need you to do, and we implore your blessing. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.